Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, one and all, welcome to the Two Tongues Podcast. Welcome back for another solo episode this week, part three of Modes of Sentience. That's what we're doing today. Pretty excited about it, actually. I gotta say, guys, I've been reading a lot of dense material on uh, consciousness that I've been avoiding and um, finally getting into it, and it's not been easy, and parts of it have been great. And parts of it have been no fun at all. Um, I bitched a little bit about David Chalmers' book. There's a couple chapters in there that were just just difficult. Um, technical, you know? It's, like, important for, for some people, but not for the purposes of of the Two Tongues podcast. So, been reading um, Peter Shirsted Hughes' uh, Modes of Sentience, and we've done two episodes already. The first chapter um, on panpsychism. The next episode we did was on chapter two and three, all things Alfred North Whitehead. Um, go back and listen to those if you haven't. They're really good. And they're all kind of stacking up, obviously, coming from the same book. So they're stacking up, leading us in a direction. This episode is going to cover the next two chapters in the book. I call it Psychedelic Philosophy. So this episode is Psychedelic Philosophy. That's kind of what I'm excited about, you guys. It's, uh, I mean... That's such an intriguing little phrase, psychedelic philosophy. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out what uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes has to say. Um, he's going to let us have this conversation partly, partly from his perspective and partly from the words of a bunch of a bunch of different philosophers. I got to say, I'm a little bit peanut butter and jealous about this uh, because it is kind of what I tried to do. In a couple of episodes of the podcast already, um, when I talked about the mystic experience, I talked about my own, I talked about the images in mystic experience and psychedelic experience, I gave uh, a whole series of quotes about people who had mystic experiences and tried to describe them going way back in time, um, uh, go back to like you know the Roman period, go back to first cent- the first century, uh, you know, t- talking about Jesus, even back beyond that, talking about uh, Moses and Buddha and some other religious figures. Um, but then also going through the references that came out of William James' uh, varieties of religious experience, which has a whole shit ton of other awesome uh, descriptions of mystic experience. Um, and then a, a guy that's referenced in that book, a uh, Canadian doctor named um, Maurice Buck, he he had a book um, called Cosmic Consciousness where he did the same thing. He basically tried to explain to people who haven't had a mystic experience what it is, what it's like, and what sort of um, 
knowledge comes from that because that's what people say when they have mystic experiences. It's not just any, any knowledge, by the way. It's usually like the most profound kind of knowledge. So I tried to do that. And I have to say, Dr. Shirsted Hughes, I think he did a better job than me. Um, it maybe didn't do a better job than William James, but there's some other references that he uses that I think are that weren't in William James' book that are really fucking good. So let's get into it, guys. Um, let's get into it. So before I do the intro... I'm going to give you another vocabulary lesson. I did that last time. You know, it's sort of reluctant to do this, but I have to. When we're going through this material, there's some words that you may have not heard before that you're going to want to know what they mean. So this won't be as bad as it was in the last episode. There was like oh, a dozen words that we had to explain. There's only two this time around. So if you guys have not heard of the word noetic, this is a word you're going to see today. Um, you know what comes to my mind when I when I hear noetic, is um, kind of a new branch of science, uh, noetic science. Um, it has some pop culture references from uh, from Dan Brown. If you guys know the Da Vinci Code author, uh, the noetic sciences were, were incorporated into some of those books. That's kind of where I know the word from. Um, but it also pops up in William James. So this is a word that goes way back, but it basically means something that relates to the mind or to consciousness. But it usually has something to do with some sort of inner wisdom, uh, mystic insight, or intuition. So some these are all words that get related to noetic. It's a feeling of certainty. It's a feeling of uh, supernatural certainty, you might say, that seems to come from within so that it's trusted. It's something that you trust. It's like an intuition or a feeling that you have. You didn't cause it. You just feel it. You respond to that feeling. Um, that's, that's a good way of understanding noetic. The other word is veridical. I can't say I ever heard that word before I read the book. Veridical. It just means real or truthful. And in the context of the book, when he says veridical, he, he, that's, what he, that's what he means. He means real. And it's sort of a little bit of a rabbit hole to trying to understand what he means by real. But I'm going to let you decide. All right, so this brings me to my intro, which is something I've written out, so let me just read a couple of paragraphs for you, and then we'll get into the book. All right, here we go. As we heard from such prestigious thinkers as Walter Stacy, William James, and Alfred North Whitehead, the origin of all religious systems is unanimously believed to stem from an experience this is a personal experience, not a social one, and one that is more deeply hidden than any other. It is an experience like others, hidden from the outside world. But within, it is seemingly hidden even from the self. This is a mystic experience. It is the great insight lurking within us all that can rise to the surface and with it reveal the mysteries of reality. The unity of all existence, the primacy of conscious experience, and the nature of God itself. It is something so powerful, so earth-shattering, that no one is unchanged by the experience. Having such an experience divides the epics of your life, like the birth of Jesus did for our historical timeline, into before the mystic experience 
and after it. Interestingly, Dr. Shersted Hughes uses Alfred North Whitehead's words to make the same claim about philosophy, to link the mystic experience to philosophical insight. Whitehead says, the essence of great experience is penetration into the unknown, the unexperienced. If you like to phrase it so, philosophy is mystical, for mysticism is direct insight into depths as yet unspoken. So today, we will examine the mystic experience. We will try to understand what it is, if it can be relied on and to, to any extent, and if so, how this experience is linked to and has influenced the way we understand ourselves and the world through philosophy. Here it goes. All right, so I'm going to call this section the experience. So we're going to talk about the mystic experience. Dr. Shirsted Hughes begins like this. He says, vast varieties of experience can be occasioned by psychedelic substances from the mundane to the sublime. So he's making a point, and he's going to continue to make this point in the beginning especially, which is interesting. It's something that I really... I have to say I really didn't consider deeply, and I'll talk a little bit about why, but what he's saying is that a psychedelic experience, even a visionary, powerful psychedelic experience, some of them can be mundane. Some of them can be sublime. So it's like there's a, there's a spectrum and a hierarchy to those types of psychedelic experiences, and not all of them are dramatically life-changing, powerful experiences. Some of them are different, less, you know, you might say. Um, some of them are very strange, as you probably know, um, and he's going he's gonna to explain some of that as we go on, but he's, he's making an interesting point, and I think the resistance I have to this, but I, I want to go with him on this, is that when you have the mystic experience, that noetic quality that we're going to hear about in, in a minute, it's so reassuring, it's so confidence-inducing. It's like you have this experience, and, and like we've said before, it's like it's the realest experience. It's realer than real. It's nothing that you would ever question because it comes through like that in this amazing way. And what he's saying is that you can have that sort of confidence, that sort of powerful experience, and in some cases it may be justified, and in some cases it may not so that noetic feeling that comes along with mystic experience, it makes you want to believe it. And what he's saying is that there might be parts of the experience, or even whole experiences of, of certain varieties, that fall into this category of um, mundane. They fall into this category of, you know, shouldn't be accepted wholeheartedly. And I think there's truth in that. But I, uh, from my own mystic experiences, it's something that... I resist because, again, something about the experience wants to convince you. It's so convincing. Um, so let's just keep pushing through here. He, he says, can psychedelic states reveal any objective reality or are they always subjective? He says, for some explorers, there is a noetic aspect to certain psychedelic states. They are illuminations, revelations. So this is what he means by that noetic quality, where the experience seems like you're, be, you're like you 
cracked the code. You've been enlightened. You've learned some secret gnosis, some secret knowledge. It's like a revelation. That's how it sounds. Like trying to talk Moses out of the fact that he talked to a burning bush. Good luck. When you have that kind of experience, it's very difficult to talk yourself out of it. So this is what I, what I was referring to about this noetic quality. And this bit about the question about whether psychedelic revelation is telling you anything objective about the world or whether it's just something subjective. That's really the question that we're going to focus on in the first bit. Objective reality is something, you know, Kyle and I have said many times, it's not what we experience. We, we, we know it's out there. We know that objective reality must exist. Um, but our experiences, our perceptions, are they're representational. It's like we've talked about many times. You, you look at a cat on the street, or you look at a paving stone, as an example we used before, and you step on that hard surface of that paving stone, or you see that cat run across the street, let's say, in front of you, and you know that there's something there objectively. You know, and I think it's fair enough to say that, or you wouldn't have had a perception, right? But what the cat is, what your perception is showing you, is not everything the cat is. It's not everything the paving stone is. It's only the most basic parts of it that are needed for you to observe it and to use it, you know, as the case may be, you know, to step on that paving stone. What do I need to know about the, about the paving stone? Not much. I certainly don't need to know about the underside of the paving stone that's buried in the dirt. I certainly don't need to know about the cloud of elementary particles and electrons that are spinning around, you know, in this, in this universe, this microscopic universe within the stone. I don't need to know that either. So this is what he's pointing to. He says objective reality for the stone or for the cat is all of those things all at once. And we never experience everything that an object is. We only experience some little bit of it, whatever is minimally necessary for us. So what he's saying is, if that's the case, in our ordinary state of consciousness, if I then step into a psychedelic type of consciousness, a whole new type of consciousness, am I learning something about what's really there? Am I learning something objective about the object or is this just something in my head? That's the question that's being asked. And it's a good one. All right, he says, The feeling of obtaining novel knowledge concerning fundamental reality is often accompanied this experience. And that's 100% the case. This is, again, part of this noetic quality. It's what you feel like you've received in a mystic intuition is new or novel information about fundamental reality. That is the case. All right, he says, for some psychonauts, such noetic feelings suffice for full-on belief in the objective existence of the apparent realities perceived. And that is exactly what I was trying to say in the beginning. That noetic feeling is enough for most people to say, yep, hook, line, and sinker. This experience is something special. This experience is real. It's realer than real. I'm going with it. I 100% believe it. That's how I felt. It's overwhelming, that feeling. He's saying for some people, that noetic feeling that comes with the experience is enough for you to say, yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take this whole package. I believe it 100%. He goes on. He says such apparent realities may involve fearful four-dimensional praying mantis machines 
fiendish pixies pursuing some vital interstellar factory logistics, or one's becoming a sentient polyhedron, eternally spinning for the sake of love. And uh, that's funny. Um, It's funny, right? (laughs) Hearing those sorts of kind of visionary experiences described, four-dimensional praying mantis machine, fiendish fiendish pixies, or becoming a sentient, you know, four-dimensional shape, spinning for the sake of love. If you've ever had a mystic experience, these are the kind of abstract, fanciful things that you might encounter. Um, Not everyone does. The meaning attached to them can be completely unrelated to the images. The meaning can be completely unrelated to the images as far as I'm concerned. So what we're hearing described here, maybe it sounds fantastic and ridiculous, like something out of a psychedelic music video or something, but um, I don't think that should dissuade you. Anybody listening, actually, shouldn't dissuade you from thinking that those experiences might be important or that there might be information, important information that can be gleaned from them. The point that Dr. Shirstead Hughes is making is that if you're one of those people that has this noetic feeling that comes along with a mystic experience and then you just want to buy it hook, line, and sinker, that you might want to be careful if what it is you're buying hook, line, and sinker are four-dimensional praying mantis machines, right? Or that you've become a sentient polyhedron spinning for the sake of love. Now, if you've had a mystic experience, that's going to be funnier to you than if you haven't because... A lot of what comes through in the, with the experience is this overwhelming feeling of love that comes along with the feeling of unity that we're going to talk about. So being a sentient polyhedron eternally spinning for the sake of love is something you can actually kind of understand if you've had one of these experiences. But it is abstract. It is borderline ridiculous. Um, and we're going to talk about that more. Uh, he goes on, though. He says, William James, however, reserves noeticism for a grander metaphysical uh, scheme, such as belief in the unreality of time or space, the unity of subject and object, moreover the ultimate unity of things, the ubiquity of minds and all entities. So William James, who who wrote the Varieties of Religious Experience, and we're going to talk more about him today, um, he wouldn't give that that noetic, he wouldn't say that a crazy... um, hard-to-follow, dreamlike visual, like four-dimensional praying mantis machines, that that is something that necessarily has that noetic feeling. Maybe it does for some people. And maybe it means something deeper. You know, I don't know. But he's saying that William James reserved that title, noetic, for a particular type of mystic experience, what I would call the most dramatic type, what I would call the... what I would call the pinnacle of that type of experience. It's the becoming one with the universe, you know, that, that unity, that ego death experience. Um, that's what William James is saying he calls noetic. All of these other types of experiences you might think of as lesser, incomplete versions that are building towards this religious experience, this mystic experience that not everybody has. But when they do, there are things like not believing that space and time are real or that subject and object aren't two different things, that they're one thing. In fact, the whole universe is one thing and the whole universe is made up of mind or consciousness. These are all very common um, 
descriptions that people come back with when they have had that pinnacle mystic experience. And that's going to become important in a minute. All right, he says, for others, such so-called psychedelically induced mysticism yields no insight into reality at all. So if you've ever known anybody who's done psychedelics uh, that have had crazy experiences but but refuses to admit or to suggest that any of those experiences were enlightening or that any of those experiences were borderline spiritual or that they changed the way that they view the world, these are all things that some people say that have psychedelic experiences or psychedelic mystic experiences, but not all. And I think some of that has to do with individual, you know, individuals vary. Their biology varies. The way they respond to chemicals varies. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it is set and setting. Another part of it is intentionality. It's like anybody who tells you about psychedelics will tell you this. What you get out of the experience has a lot to do with how you prepare to have the experience. If you go into the experience searching, seeking, and hoping that you're going to have some enlightening um, experience, you're very likely going to. If you're one of those people that goes into it as a skeptic and says, you know, chemical schmemical, uh, you know, I'm not going to encounter God. I'm going to have a fun, a fun time at a party. Well, you're probably not going to have a fun time at a party, but you're definitely not going to have a mystic insight. So, you know, what you bring to the table does have something to do with it. I don't think that you can write off a mystic experience because you know a guy who's done a bunch of acid and has never had one. Something like that. All right, so back to it. He says, certain theistic thinkers, those are, you know, believers of God. So certain theistic thinkers consider induced mysticism to be fake mysticism. So I can't help but think of fake news when I read fake mysticism. Uh, But the idea is pretty straightforward. You can imagine a religious person. Uh, from a formal religion, like a, like a Catholic priest or a Buddhist monk or a nun or somebody like that. You talk to someone like that who studied a religious book for their entire lives, has learned all the prayers and the rituals and the dogma um, and all that sort of thing. Somebody who's been through all that hard work and who either has or, or even hasn't, let's say, had a experience of God or a mystic experience who hasn't been able to achieve that through prayer or ritual or meditation or whatever, that person might be jealous, I think, of somebody who has had a mystic experience. Um, whether they worked hard for it, like the, you know, like the aesthetic has done their whole life, like, like the monk or the nun has done their whole life, they might be jealous of someone who's had the experience when they've always wanted it and haven't had it, especially if they can see that they've worked really hard for it and that somebody else didn't. And that's something that Carl Jung said. You know, he said, uh, now I'm going to butcher this quote, trying to think about it off the top of my head. But he basically said that you shouldn't trust um, enlightenment that comes too easily. And by that he meant if you take a psychedelic and you have a crazy, you know, enlightening experience, that, that maybe you shouldn't trust that experience because it came too easily, right? There's lots of things in our lives that are like that. And you want to, you want to, agree with that. You want to agree with that. There are no shortcuts in real life. You want to agree with that sentiment. Um, but I don't, I don't agree with that sentiment, personally. Um, I think that it's, it boils down to, uh, it boils down to 
to jealousy. If somebody's worked really hard to have a mystic experience, or they've worked really hard and failed to have a mystic experience, somebody who hasn't worked hard, or somebody who has achieved one, let's say, whether they worked hard or not, that person is going to look, or the, you know, the, the, person, the, the religious person who has failed is going to look at the psych- psychonaut and say, you cheated, you cheated, you know? And so that's the person that's going to call it fake mysticism. Whatever you learned from that mystic experience, whatever your enlightenment was, it's fake, it's false. You know, you're, you're, you know it's, not, it's not valuable. What you have to do is the hard thing. And, you know, it's something I say. What you have to do is to dedicate your life to it and study, and study it and, and, you know, focus your consciousness on it and change, you know, yourself to accord with this experience and then and only then will you be will you be allowed to have it will god bestow it on you and i i think all that sounds great and it's and it's possible it's possible that way but it's not the only way and i think a psychedelically induced mystic experience personally i think it's it's not fake mysticism it's legitimate real mysticism i mean You've heard of people having similar experiences, let's say, when they like uh, have a, a stroke or they have a, um, um, what's the other one? Um, uh, boy, I can't think of the other one. Well, um, there's various, various conditions, you know, that, the, the things that happen in the brain that go wrong, like a seizure. And you can have in, uh, enlightening mystic experiences from that. I think it was Dostoevsky who did, or one of those Russian uh, authors. Anyway, did did those people who had a seizure and have a mystic experience did they cheat you know did they cheat did they are they getting fake mysticism see i don't know man i think mysticism is mysticism is mysticism and somebody who calls it fake mysticism um has some ulterior motives all right then he says the physicalist and by this he just means the materialist you know your your everyday modern western scientifically minded person the physicalist takes induced mysticism to be merely subjective. So what that means is it's just a drug experience. It's just how your brain is responding to this drug that's not usually there. That's all it is. That's all it is. That's what a materialist would say. All right, Dr. Shirstead Hughes goes on. He says, that which the physicalist and the theistic skeptic share is the belief that the existence of a physical substance, the drug, and its neurological ramifications, the neurological correlates of psychedelic consciousness, is a sufficient condition for explaining the psychedelic experience. So what, is it, what, what are they saying? They're, they're saying all you need to explain the psychedelic experience is what I laid out before. A chemical in your brain and your, your brain's response to that chemical. What you're experiencing is that and only that. And this is what many or most people who who don't think mysticism is possible or real or don't, you know, don't think that psychedelic mystic experience is beneficial or real. This is what they say. And I agree wholeheartedly. He says, thus the experience is either dismissed as sacrilegious or is merely delusional. That's it. That's exactly it. He says, but beyond these two extremes, there lies the possibility that certain experiences are veridical some revelations, others hallucinations. But how could this um, veridicality be determined? So remember, by vertical he means 
He means real. So he's saying that between the two extremes of this all-enlightening, you should believe it all, um, you know, noetically, all this, this, you know, extreme on the belief side of a mystic experience or the extreme on the kind of brushing it off side as, as sacrilegious or delusional, at somewhere in the middle, there lies the possibility that something that is being experienced in a psychedelic mystic experience is real. Something like a revelation, the way people claim it's possible parts are like that. Others, you know, like the, like the four-dimensional mantis machines we were talking about, they may, they may just be hallucinations. They may be just some accompanying brain, you know, function. Uh, so there, maybe there's some truth to the people that brush it off. Maybe there's some truth to the people that believe it wholeheartedly. And maybe that truth lies somewhere in the middle. And if that's the case... How can we separate the wheat from the chaff? How do we know what's veridical? How do we know what is real? That's a good question. All right, so he tries to answer that. He says, for a veridical experience, one requires physiological perspective processing. So something like brain, a brain and eyes. And an external perceived object. Okay, so you have to have a way of perceiving and you have to have something to perceive. He says both one and two, subject and object, are necessary for an experience to be real. Okay, so you can understand this. If I'm, looking, if, I'm, if I'm having an experience, let's say, and I'm looking out at an object, but the object isn't really there, but I'm having an, an experience of an object anyway, well, I think we'd all pretty much agree that's probably some kind of hallucination. That's some sort of a fever dream. So if the object isn't there, then there isn't a real experience. If the subject isn't there, there isn't a real experience either, right? If it's just a chair sitting there and no one's observing the chair, there's no experience of the chair, right? So this is pretty straightforward logic. He's saying we have to have a, a way of perceiving and we have to have something to perceive. Those two things are necessary for a real experience, for an experience to be veridical. Okay, fair enough. He goes on. He says, therefore, the criterion for determining an experience as hallucinatory is not merely the existence of neural correlates of experience. We must also rule out the existence of that which is perceived. All right, so this is absolutely key. He's saying, like, you can have a hallucination, and you're going to have things going on in your brain, right, that you can maybe you can track on a scan of some kind. He's like, having some correlates going on in your brain doesn't necessarily mean the experience is real. Because you could be having a fucking hallucination, right? You could be having a fever dream. You could be ha looking at a mirage. There might be an experience, some brain activity going on, but there really isn't anything there to be experienced. So you haven't had a real experience, right? So if that's possible, he's like, it's not enough to look at the neural correlates, to look at what's going on in your brain. That's not enough. If we want to say it's a hallucination... We have to be able to rule out that there's an object there being perceived. So again, if there's no chair there and I see a chair, that's a hallucination. I have to be able to rule out that there's no chair there. And that is so, it's so key. Because what he's saying is if you're having a mystic, psychedelic mystic experience, we have to be able to rule out that what you're experiencing isn't an actual real thing. It's not an actual object. 
How do you do that? It's not a physical object. So how do you do that? Okay, let's keep reading. He says, Neural correlates of psychedelic consciousness neither prove nor disprove that which is experienced. So we said that already. If um, I'm going to have these, these brain activity, neural correlates going off in my brain, whether it's a hallucination or whether it's a revelation. Either way. So that's not enough to, to, to say that this is a hallucination. He said we would expect neural correlates for both veridical and non-veridical psychedelic experience. So veridical might be something you would call a revelation, something real, something really real, or non-veridical, which would just be like a hallucination. He says there are a number of criteria that generally determine whether what we experience is real or not. So these include sensibility. Okay, so something sensed by the traditional five senses. However, there are things that exist that are not perceived through the traditional senses, such as mathematical theorems and logical axioms. Okay, so here he's saying there are things that we know, and we know to be real, like mathematics, and those things exist, in a way, in our head. They don't, they don't exist in the world. You can't smell or touch or taste math. Do you understand? So what he's, what he's saying here, he's giving us a little bit of a, of a route um, away from this idea that if you're experiencing something in a different way, other than through your five senses, that it could still be real. You can't write it off. It's like the experience a bat has when it uses echolocation. We have no idea what that sense is like. It doesn't mean it's not real, you know? And if we are able to have a, an abstract um, reality, like math, that exists in our heads... We cannot say that that is not real, even though we can't sense it, you know, externally. We can't touch it or taste it or see it. All right, he says, we cannot rule out the existence of objects of psychedelic experience solely on the basis that they cannot be observed through the traditional senses in a prosaic sense. And again, that's just, just the same logic as we would use to say math exists, we know it, it's real, even though it, you can't go out and touch a formula. It's still real. We know that. So maybe psychedelic experience is real in that way. Okay, and then he goes on. He says, apart from sensibility, there's shared objects of experience. This is another way we can try to tell if an experience is real. If I, if I see, look out and, well, here, let me just read the quote. He says, if only I see the lamp, but others do not. I may question the, the, um, the, the, whether that's real. Okay? He says, The experience of grander psychedelic phenomena, such as the unity of all and the unreality of time, they're common shared objects of experience under the psychedelic influence. Okay, so there's something about shared experience that's going to lend credibility to whether something is real. So going back to the um, example he uses, if I look out at a lamp sitting on the table, but nobody else sees it. That's evidence that it's a hallucination, right? Because I'm the only one experiencing the lamp. But if I look at the lamp and everyone agrees there's a lamp there, then it's a shared experience. It's an object of shared experience. And that's going to give me evidence that, okay, maybe it is real. Because it's not just me seeing it, but everybody else is seeing it. Then he, then he uses that same logic about psychedelic experience. He says, look, there are some parts of a psych psychedelic mystic experience that are like that. They're shared parts of the experience. Almost anybody 
who has the type of experience that I'm talking about, that pinnacle mystic experience, they see the same shit. They feel the same feelings. They feel that, that everything is one, a unity of, of all. They feel like time and space are, are not quite as real as we think they are. Um, things like that. And those are shared objects of experience. Because they're shared, they're, they're less likely to be a hallucination, right? Like the lamp on the table. Everybody sees them. So that's evidence that they're veridical. It's evidence that there's some reality to them, and we can't brush them off. All right, he says, The fact that many types of psychedelic experience have shared objects of experience, such as the unreality of time or the unity of subject and object, is suggestive of veridicality. There appears, then, to be no obvious positive ground for thinking that certain shared psychedelic experiences are not veridical. So that is interesting. And it's an argument I never really heard before, and I like it. I like it. Um, I have a hard time parsing out the parts of the psychedelic experience that are most important, you know? Uh, or if there's any parts of the experience that can be disregarded. Um, what he's saying is, those parts of the experience that are common, that are shared between human beings, those might be the most important parts of the experience. And when you put it that way, I'm completely on board. I like that. So let's keep going. He says, Thus, we see that one's underlying ideology subjectively determines whether or not we understand psychedelic experiences as hallucinations or revelations. Okay, so that's something that I touched on a little earlier. We don't have to harp on it, but it's the idea of set and setting. It's going into it with, with you know, presuppositions. If I'm an atheist, scientific type that don't believe um, that uh, spirituality is, is real, that don't believe that there's mystery to the cosmos beyond the physical, if I sit down and have an LSD trip, even a, pe a peak pinnacle mystic experience, I may come out of that and say, you know, I had the most incredible insights, the most incredible visions. I can't believe all of that is just, you know, stemming from my brain's experience of this chemical. You know, uh, I can't believe that there's really no meaning to it. How strange. That's, how, that's what they would say. So something about what, what you think going into it and being open-minded, it does play a big, a big part in kind of how you process the experience. All right, he says, on the other side, believing that everything one perceives in the psychedelic state to be veridical is obviously also too much, considering that certain phenomena are never shared. So that cuts to the heart of kind of what I said at the beginning, that when you have that psychedelic experience that has that noetic quality, that feels realer than real, and you want to believe it wholeheartedly, he's like that there are things that maybe you shouldn't believe wholeheartedly. And maybe the best way to figure out what those things are is to, to divide the things that are common in these mystic experiences from the things that aren't. The things that aren't common, maybe those are the subjective things. Those are the things we can ignore. Now, I'm not 100% sure that I agree with that, but I think this logic is sound. I think there is something special about those characteristics that are shared. The ones that aren't shared, the ones that are subjective, I think of those more like a, like a dream I'm having. 
You know, it's more like images that are being pulled by my subconscious. Um, yeah, there are references to things in my real life, to things that are going on in you know in my in my in my thought process and my fears and my hopes and my fantasies. Um, I think those parts maybe are subjective, but to say that they aren't meaningful or can be disregarded, I'm, I question that. I question that. All right. He says the plausibility of the um, verticality of psychedelic experience depends on their having a shared type of experience one that is coherent with rational metaphysics and which can be further fortified by a concurrent noetic feeling. So, to his mind, if we examine psychedelic experiences and we can pull from them what's common, then we're going to have a much, much better reason to believe that those things are veridical, that those things are real in some way and should be explored more deeply. Then what we look for is an explanation that's coherent with, he says, rational metaphysics that makes sense to us, that can, that's convincing to us, and is fortified by that noetic feeling. So it's something that, again, the mystic experience um, leaves sort of this aftertaste of certainty and confidence that goes along with it, that all of those things w will build up to give you evidence for believing those specific things from the mystic experience. And I, do, and I do agree that those things must be the universal, universally applicable things. The things like Carl Jung talks about when he talks about archetypes, that those things are perhaps um, the most universally meaningful parts of the experience and maybe, again, the most important or at least uh, the most generally applicable uh, knowledge or, or enlightenment is maybe, maybe is going to come from those things. And I think that's true. If you've had a mystic experience, the being one with the universe, that's, that's the thing that you feel the strongest about. That's the thing that has the, the greatest noetic pull. He does say something interesting here. He says, what complicates the issue further is that shared experiences may be contingent on culture. For instance, the uh, unitive states experienced in the West are seemingly lacking in the indigenous American psychedelic experience. So I haven't done the research to say whether I believe that's the case or not, but I do think what he's saying here is when we're trying to find shared experiences and that unity feeling that comes through most of the time, you don't see many examples of that coming from you know indigenous American psychedelic experience. So when you look at tribes in Canada, tribes in America, uh, the United States, or Central or South America, they've, they're using peyote, they're using psychedelic drugs, you know, psilocybin mushrooms and all sorts of things, but they're not saying that they have this unifying feeling the way that Western people or, or even Eastern uh, people um, having mystic experiences will say. My explanation for that is is probably... Again, a little bit of skepticism about whether that's really the case, and I'd have to go back and look at, you know, um, more of the folklore and uh, and some of those things to be able to tell you if 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 there's really an absence of this unity experience um, coming from, uh, you know, coming from um, uh, North and South America. Maybe there is. Um, I think it's something more like this archetypal uh, point I brought up a minute ago. I think that there's a cultural language. Um, cultural images, you might say, that we use to understand um, 
ourselves and the world. And some of that stuff is taught to us. So it's like a way of viewing the world. We view it through the, the, the lens of our culture. And if you're a Native American, maybe that you know has to do with animals. It has to do with therianthrope, you know, half animal, half human creatures, and totem poles, and you know, um, uh, animism, things being things being uh, possessing spirits. And you know, there's a certain way of looking at the world that will be different than it is in the West. And so, I think the way that they experience a psychedelic mystic experience is going to be seen through those lenses. And I, again, I think that's more of the subjective part, you know, the part that's the part that's visual that uses symbols. That you know, of course, those symbols have to come from somewhere. They're going to come from the conscious and unconscious material that you've got, you know, to work with. That's going to be subjective. I think that part of the experience is what is being referred to here when it says it's it's missing from indigenous American psychedelic experience. Um, I, I that would be my my spin on this. I, I really. I really think that the feeling of unity is there. It must be there. And and pointing to um, Native American religion as being animistic, as believing that everything is pos- possesses a spirit, I think that is that is strong evidence for the, for that sort of panpsychism, for that sort of mystic intuition that everything is conscious. I mean, there you have it. There you have it there. All right. So that's a... So that's a good that's a good look at the mystic experience. Um, what I want to do next is talk about how the mystic experience how how it can be seen in the history of Western philosophy and what sort of influences that we might be able to point to to say that when human beings were trying to figure out themselves in the world when they were doing philosophy that it it was impacted, that philosophy was impacted, the way that we understand ourselves in the world was impacted by psychedelic experience. And it goes back to the beginning of Western philosophy, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And this, this is fucking fantastic. So I'm going to give this to you here. Um, I'm going to call this section The Philosophers. It begins like this. We shall shed a little light upon the history of the notable Western philosophers who took psychedelic chemicals and how this may have influenced their thought, how psychedelics influenced philosophy. Interesting. All right. He says, Western philosophy was partially engendered by the intake of psychedelics. Plato's philosophy was partly inspired by psychedelic intake, and Western philosophy was partly inspired by Plato. He says, Plato was perhaps chiefly known for his arguments for the existence of the soul and for the subsistence of the eternal realm of forms. And again, the world of forms, according to Plato, this is the realm of ideas. This is a place where ideas exist beyond ordinary space and time. They exist in some supernatural way called the world of forms. So you've got that idea and then this idea of a soul coming from Plato. And they're interesting. Because there isn't a difference between the way Plato understood soul and the way modern people understand consciousness. Okay? So Plato is somebody who, who talked about consciousness in a way that was separate from the body or distinct from the body. This is why we use the word soul at all. And then we also talk about the realm, this realm of forms, the world of forms, where you've got ideas that exist, exist eternally. 
you know, apart from this world, you know? So you can see, you can see things there that, were, that are going to come up in, in later Western culture, you know, the idea of heaven, the idea of the spirit, um, you know, the mind-body problem. All that stuff's wrapped up in this, and Plato's bringing this to the table. And he seemingly is one of the first people to do it. So where did he get this idea from? You know, where do these come from? So now I'm going to give you a quote from Plato. Let me read that here. There are indeed many who carry the staff, but the worshipers of Dionysus, the true mystics, are few. These latter are, in my opinion, no other than those who have practiced philosophy in the right way. I have in my life left nothing undone in order to be counted among these as far as possible. So that's interesting. It's interesting for a few reasons. What Plato is saying here is that there are very few people in the world that are worshipers of Dionysus. Okay, Dionysus was the god of intoxication. Right? You, get, you become intoxicated and the world becomes magical in a way that it isn't when you're sober. It's like you, you reveal in intoxication mysteries to the world and limitations to, of your own perceptions that you don't ordinarily see. It gives you a glimpse into some reality that's there that, that you don't ordinarily see. And Plato's saying those people, the worshipers of Dionysus, they're the true mystics. They're the people that are going after the truth, the mysteries, the deep mysteries that most people ignore. And then Plato says that I've done everything in the world possible to be counted among them. So Plato sees himself as a worshiper of Dionysus. He sees himself as a true mystic, as somebody who's seeking after those deep mysteries that everybody just ignores. All right, so Dr. Shirstead Hughes says, We note Plato's desire to be figured among the philosophers of the mysteries. The mysteries were events held regularly in ancient Greece, the most official and known of which were the Eleusinian mysteries. There at the temple of Demeter, participants would drink a potion, kaikion, widely believed contained a psychedelic element. And Dr. Albert Hoffman, the creator of LSD, argued that the compound was derived from the barley parasite fungus ergot, from which LSD is derived. Okay, so pump the brakes. I've got to talk about the mystery religions. We've done this in the past, and I've talked about the Eleusinian mysteries before, but we've talked about other, others as well. These are like secret religions. You can think about this something like, uh, something like an organized religion, so imagine Christianity, but mix that with something like the Freemasons. So it's secret, and you can't talk about it outside. And that what goes on in there is, is a mystery, and it's, a, it's, only for the, it's only for the people that, that are allowed in. It's only for the initiates, right? So it's, it's a secret, secret mystery, secret knowledge that's given only to a select, worthy group of people. And Lucis was definitely one of these mysteries. And there was a religion, many religions, um, especially right around the first, uh, first century, that are like this. You could think about uh, some of the uh, Gnostic Christian groups to be like this. Um, you can think of the Mithra cult to be like this. It's a religion that came from Iran, and yet it was, yet it was worshipped in, in Egypt and Rome and Greece in, in, in secret, you know. Even Christianity was considered to be a mystery religion. So all that's just for context, but it's really interesting. 
and going back to Eleusis, um, they would go and drink the Kaikion. And according to Albert Hoffman, the Kaikion was spiked with LSD. So Plato himself participated in the Eleusinian mysteries. And he gives an account in his uh, dialogue called Phaedrus. And, and this is how it goes. This, this is Plato's words. We saw the blessed sight in vision and were initiated into that which is rightly called the most blessed of mysteries. Being permitted the sight of perfect apparitions, which we saw in the pure light, being ourselves pure and not entombed in this which we carry about with us and call the body, in which we are imprisoned like an oyster in its shell. Damn, that's good. So what's Plato saying here? He, he saw visions. He was permitted to see the sight of perfect apparitions. And what, what they were made of is pure light. And the place where he encountered these apparitions was pure light. And Plato himself was pure light. He says, Plato says he was not entombed in his body when he, had the, when he had the experience of these apparitions. He was himself bodiless. Okay? So whatever the Kaikion was... It was something that allowed Plato and the initiates to have visions where they leave their body and encounter other beings that don't have a body in this realm of pure light. Something like that. All right, Dr. Shirsted Hughes says, Thus it is quite plausible that psychedelics inspired the mind-body dualism prevalent in the West, not only in philosophy, but also in religion. Okay, so if you were Plato and you had a mystic experience, and you seemed to come out of your body, and you existed outside of your body with other beings that didn't have a body, you're going you're gonna to come away with a couple of thoughts. One of them is, I am not the same as my body. My body is something like a tomb I have to carry around with me. That's what Plato said. I am not the same as my body. And also that there's a place where your consciousness can exist that isn't the material world. Right? That's what happened to Plato in his psychedelic intuition. He came out of his body. He existed in a place that wasn't this world. He and, he and the gods around him were, were bodiless beings. So there's a difference between body and soul, according to Plato. And there's more than one place. There's a place where your soul can exist all by itself. It's the world of forms, the eternal place, the eternal place where ideas exist. Jesus Christ, that's good. And you can see how that comes directly from this mystic experience. And you can see how it, how it caused this great philosophical debate about the mind-body problem, trying to understand if the soul isn't the same as the body, if consciousness isn't the same as the body. How do they exist together? How do they interact? What is this mystery? And that's something that you can also see in religion, because in religion we have, right, a body and a soul, uh, he goes on, he says, Immanuel Kant himself did not, we assume, have any kind of mystic experience. However, a follower of his, Thomas de Quincey, did. And Kant claimed that there existed a reality, he called noumena, beyond our experience, which thus remained inaccessible to us mere humans. Okay, so where, 
where Plato, you know, going back to ancient, ancient Greece, is talking about the world of forms that he encountered in psychedelic experience. And again, had that noetic feeling, he's convinced it's realer than real. There's no arguing with Plato. He believes that, that a world of forms exists. Kant comes along many hundreds of years down the road and agrees that there's something called noumena, the world as it is, objective reality, something that we don't experience exactly, but exists. And he says it's inaccessible to us mere humans. All right, then, we, then we're going to move to Humphrey Davy, and Humphrey Davy is described as the apostle of transcendental idealism. If you remember idealism from a, a, the last episode, it's the idea that... Um, that matter doesn't exist. Matter is just an illusion. So if you have a mystic experience where you leave your body like Plato does, you might imagine the soul is the real thing. The world of forms is the real place. And when you fall back into your body and, in, and back into the material world, that those really aren't real. You've been real. You've been to the real place. These aren't. These are something else. This is the idea of idealism. And Humphrey Davy was one of these um, transcendental idealists. So it goes on like this. Such idealism, you might call it ideaism, that matter is actually only a projection of the mind, it seems to have come to Davy through high-dose intake of nitrous oxide. And we have a quote from Davy. It goes like this. I lost all connection with external things. Trains of vivid, visible images passed through my mind, produced perceptions perfectly novel. I exclaimed, nothing exists but thoughts. And fair enough, that's something that you would absolutely say, having a mystic experience, that the thing that seems realer than real, the thing that you are, is something like consciousness, and you understand that to be non-material. You understand that to be soul, mind, consciousness. And that's what Davy said. His epiphany, his enlightenment, nothing exists but thoughts. Material reality isn't, isn't really real. It's thoughts that are really real. That's the kind of thing that you might experience in mystical intuition. And this, this came from nitrous oxide use, which goes way back. That's something that William James himself experimented with and uh, Maurice Buck exper experimented with, both of which wrote tons about mystic intuition. All right, so now we get to Nietzsche. Now we get to Nietzsche. i got to say, Nietzsche is somebody that... I haven't really given a fair shake to. Um, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk much about Nietzsche. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson is on my Mount Rushmore of, of um, intellectual influences, so you think I might take Nietzsche more seriously. I just, I don't know, man, haven't really got around to it. That's how I want to put it. But hearing Nietzsche talked about um, in this book has, has given me incentive. I'm going to be checking Nietzsche out in more detail. You're not going to see it right away, but you will see it in a minute. So let me, let me start with this Nietzsche bit. Nietzsche says there are two states in which man arrives at the rapturous feeling of existence, namely in dreaming and in intoxication. All right, so what does he mean? He, he says that man can arrive at the rapturous feeling of existence. So I want to talk about what that means, firstly. Because it does describe a mystic experience. Mystic experience does feel like a rapturous feeling of existence. It's like a, 
overwhelming pleasure, you know? And you definitely describe that as rapturous. It's an overwhelming pleasure that comes from a sense of understanding and a sense of being alive or close to the source of reality in a way that's not normal. So to feel rapturous about existence is to, is to stare in awe at the fact that you are, that existence is. It's to stand in awe of existence. That's what he's trying to describe. And he says that human beings can get to that state where they, where they understand just how magical, just how beautiful and powerful and, and impossible existence is. You can get there whilst you're dreaming, and you can get there in intoxication. And you know what I mean. If you've, it doesn't have to be psychedelic, but if you've had any form of intoxication experience, you know what I mean, that there's a certain magic that the world takes on. There's a certain perspective, an unusual novel perspective that's interesting to you that isn't normal, you know? And you can tell that it's there all the time, that you're just not tapped into it all the time. You have to get into this state of mind where you realize, again, how awe-inspiring reality actually is. I'm reminded of an LSD experience uh, following a, an insect crawling down the sidewalk uh, over the cracks in the sidewalk and being completely in awe at the beauty of such a thing. That's what I'm talking about. To be completely dumbfounded and dumbstruck by just how amazing reality is. Again, you can get there through dreaming. You can get there through intoxication. This is what Nietzsche tells us. Um, I don't know. I've never had a. Um, I've never had one of those dreams that you know people say they have where they're awake and in control while while you're dreaming. But I can imagine if I did, how magical that state would be. You know, going from going from one scene to the next, like you do in our, in your dreams, but being able to sort of control it and, and fly around and do whatever it is that, you know, that your imagination will let you do. Like there are no limits. How magical that world must seem, you know, just to be able to dream. Amazing. Amazing. And it's those things that people take for granted or they write off as nonsense. The way the world seems and the way you seem when you're intoxicated or when you're dreaming, all right, so Dr. Shirsted Hughes says about Nietzsche, he says, in place of the Christian God and his morality, Nietzsche put his ideal of a coming Dionysian age of the Ubermensch, the Superman. What the Ubermensch actually is, is an issue of much debate. But one of uh, Nietzsche's biographers, a guy named A.R. Uh, Orridge, writes, New modes of consciousness will be needed, as the mystics have always declared. The differencing element of man and Superman will be possession of these. All right, so that's super interesting. Firstly, I never heard—I mean, I've heard that idea of Ubermensch. I, I knew that Nietzsche believed that there was going to be a Superman, a, a next stage of human evolution that was going to have to happen, and it was going to be like a moral evolution, um, where where. Where human beings would have to, in the, you know, in the wake of the death of God, they're going to have to figure out their own morality. They're going to have to put the pieces back together that that you know that that God and religion used to used to serve, and the glue that held everything together. That we're going to need a Superman to show up and and do all of that for us in a way that works better. That that 
sustains, you know, uh, our lives in the world um, in a way that, again, our religious feelings used to do. And when he says that the difference between an ordinary man and the Superman is going to be a new mode of consciousness, possession of a new mode of consciousness. Well, you have to you have to then hearken back to the mystic experience because that's what a mystic experience does. It gives you a new mode of consciousness. It, it at least reveals that other modes of consciousness are possible. And somebody who's had them definitely feels like they have a perspective other people don't. You know, that's why it's so hard to talk about mystic experience or psychedelic experience because nobody understands. And it all sounds like gobbledygook. Um, it's also interesting to note that Nietzsche was, a, was, was ill his whole life. He was a sickly man and was likely taking a lot of drugs for, for various medical reasons. And we're going to get to that next. And this next bit says, And new modes of consciousness did Nietzsche certainly experience. So during the August of 1884, Nietzsche was combining chloral hydrate with potassium bromide. And he said something, I think, to his sister, and it goes like this. He described to me how, when he closed his eyes, he saw an abundance of fantastic flowers, winding and intertwining, constantly growing and changing forms and colors, an exotic luxuriance, sprouting one out of the other. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever had a mystic experience, those people listening, but if you have, that's a pretty damn good um, description. Especially, a, especially like a DMT-style experience where it's vividly and powerfully visual. One of the things that you see, and I talked about this before many times on the podcast, one, one of the things you see is fractal geometry. You see shapes that turn into new shapes. And those shapes are constantly transforming, shifting, changing. And the change is not just in their form, but in their color. And it seems like patterns coming out of patterns coming out of patterns. It's like patterns within patterns within patterns forever. So that's that fractal um, uh, thing that kind of comes along with it. And what Nietzsche described was flowers. So you can imagine the geometry of flowers. You know, if you've ever seen anybody like have young children coloring, like color, like pictures of flowers. What is it? It's a circle in the middle, and the petals are a certain shape. You know, They're, it's perfectly ge- geometric flowers. And he describes them as winding and intertwining, growing and changing, and it, it emerging from one another. That's exactly, exactly what that type of mystic experience is like. So did Nietzsche have one? Well, it certainly seems like he did. All right, and this brings me to this, some of the really interesting stuff I didn't know that I have to, I have to tell you. All right, so, so Dr. Her, uh, Shirstead Hughes, he, he goes on, he says, Nietzsche came to hear Dionysus. As Socrates heard his daemon. Okay, but I, I want to stop there for a second. If you guys remember the episodes we did on Socrates, one of the things Socrates said was that he heard an inner voice. He called it his daemon. And he would always obey his inner voice. If his voice told him something was wrong, then he wouldn't do it. If his, vo- if his inner voice told him something was a lie, then he wouldn't say it. And if you think that's bullshit, if you think that's make-believe, Socrates had an opportunity and everybody, in fact, wanted him 
to leave where he was being held by the authorities, the Greek authorities, um, you know, when he, when he was thrown in prison and was going to be killed, he was given an opportunity to leave and save his life. It's like the guards left, like nobody wants to kill this old man. Just go and go about your business, Socrates. Just don't make any more trouble. Socrates' inner voice told him that wasn't, that wasn't right, that he had to stand up for what he believed. And, and he stayed, and he drank the hemlock, and he died. So Socrates, whether you believe he heard an inner demon or not, he claims to have, have listened to his inner voice, and, and he listened to it all the way up to his death. So that's something. And here, the, here he's saying that Nietzsche also heard an inner voice, an inner, an inner voice that he, that he believed was Dionysus, you know? He, he believed that the god of intoxication that the Greeks believed in, that that was actually an unknown part of his self, that he was growing to, to learn existed, and he was growing to identify with, you know, this unknown, unseen force within himself. And I'll just throw in here that Jordan Peterson, he, he also talked about this um, in Maps of Meaning and some of his other books, that one day he decided to just start listening to that nagging internal voice he had in his head that, that told him whenever he spoke, you know, usually it had to do with ideas, you know, philosophical or political ideas that he would regurgitate from somebody else. You know, if, if he didn't really deep down believe those things, he would get this nagging voice coming back to him saying, you don't really believe those things. That's bullshit. And eventually he decided as an experiment just to start listening to that voice. And he became more truthful. He became more honest with himself. You know, and, and it was a jumping off place for him to actually make progress, to learn what he believed, to, you know, to, to start thinking critically. And, um, and so I just think it's interesting that you have that coming from somebody like Jordan Peterson in the modern era. You got something like that going way back to ancient Greece with Socrates and then with Nietzsche himself. So here's where it gets here, here's where it gets good. I want to read this again. Nietzsche came to hear Dionysus as Socrates heard his daemon. And eventually he be, he became Dionysus, signing off letters by the god's name. <laughs> Signing letters by the god's name. Nietzsche's drugs may have made him into the god that returned to supersede Christ. Jesus. Uh, so there's some blasphemy there um, on the surface, but that is so good. All right, so firstly, you know that Nietzsche was sickly his whole life. We know he died early. We know he was taking all kinds of drugs. The fact that towards the end of his life, when Nietzsche said, look, there's this Apollonian and Dionysian way of living, and that both of those impulses exist in human beings. There's the order principle and the chaos principle, right? Dionysus is the chaos principle. He's saying that you can identify with this Dionysus, that it exists within yourself, and that exploring that, you know, like, like, uh, like Plato said, that's the true mystic quest, is exploring that the unknown. And Nietzsche, in his later years, would write letters where he signed as his own name, Dionysus. That's, I mean, it's bold, it's sacrilegious, and it's awesome. It's, it's awesome because what the mystic experience tells you, and this is something that I've never heard talked about from the perspective of Nietzsche, 
before. What the mystic experience tells you is that the thing that you are, consciousness, and the thing from which the cosmos emerged are the same. So the thing from which the, co- the cosmos emerged, you might call that God. I certainly would. But let's call that consciousness for the, for the purposes of this conversation. So to, so to Nietzsche, somebody who had a mystic experience and must have realized exactly that, that there is no distinction between that which brought material reality into being, God, and Nietzsche himself, and you and me. We are God. We are consciousness. That's what Nietzsche realized. I think that's amazing. And, and, and to come out that way, to where he was actually signing off letters, you know, truly yours, God. That's amazing. Makes the hair stand up on my arms. I do recognize the blasphemy of the, and I do recognize the, the humble thing that we have within ourselves that doesn't want to accept that statement, I am God. But I think that's something that the mystic experience forces on you. All right, so we're going to pivot over to William James. So William James, in one of his later books, it was called A Pluralistic Universe, he writes this, The drift of all evidence we have seems to me to sweep us very strongly towards belief in some form of superhuman life with which we may, unknown to ourselves, be co-conscious. God damn. I, I wrote wow with, a, with an exclamation point next to that. I never, I never saw that William James quote before. I never heard him say it like that before. And I'm so validated by it because that's something that I believe that I haven't really ever had the words to quite say. And the way I've talked about it in the past is using as a starting place Jordan Peterson's description of mythology, you know, and, and creation mythology. So those are my favorite stories, stories about how the cosmos came to be and all the ways human beings try to understand that with these stories. And one of the things that we've said, going back to the very earliest time, is that, is that material reality was born from something that, that is the union of opposites, something that Jordan Peterson calls the Ouroboros, something that in Taoism is represented by the yin and the yang. So you can see that symbol in your, in your mind. You kind of know what I mean. They're, two, they're opposites, the white side and the black side. They're opposites united. And to me, that always understanding what those opposites are were always difficult because I wanted to make them like all-encompassing so that when you took both opposites together, you wouldn't leave anything out. And there are ways that I've, that I've thought about that, like being and non-being, like subject and object, like consciousness and unconsciousness. And those are all, for me, good ways of understanding what that Ouroboros might be and understanding, at least symbolically, that when you have opposites, like let's say male and female, and they're in union, that what you have is a creative act, you know, like sex, you have something that is, that is giving birth to, to something else. And so that's how these myths will talk about it. They'll talk about the consci- consciousness on one side and unconsciousness on the other. And they're in union. And because they're in union, they're just cranking out being. 
because they're in union, they're creating things like the cosmos, like you and like I. And that's the explanation for being somehow in this, in this sort of symbolic mythological way. And that always led me to believe something like this, that there is an unknown part of myself, right? That I'm aware of the conscious part, but I'm not exactly aware of the unconscious part. And because I'm not aware of the unconscious part, I don't know what it is. And the unconscious part is not like anything I, I understand. It's something like God, right? The unconscious is where your fantasies and dreams come from. The unconscious is where your interests come from. It's what pulls you this way and that way in the world. Your unconscious is where your, you know, your admiration and disgusts come from. Um, you know, your unconscious is, is the place where the archetypes exist, the things that show up in our dreams and in our, in our, in our myths. It's, it's something like the material, like the potential from which we can create whatever the fuck we want to create with ourselves, with the world. You know, our unconscious is hard to define, but it's way more than we usually understand ourselves to be. It's like, I've got limits, man. And my limits don't go into this infinite place called the unconscious. And yet, I am conscious and unconscious. I am both God and man. And this is a very difficult thing that I've been struggling to understand. And here you have William James coming to my fucking rescue. He comes down here and he says, Everything we know leads us to believe that in some weird way we exist. You know... as human and superhuman, together in a co-conscious way. And what that means is the explanation to my conundrum. What that means is that we are both God and man. Our consciousness is both here and now in the material world and somewhere else, somewhere we might call the unconscious or non-being. It's somewhere else. It's some, it's some in, in some eternal place. But see, our consciousness, the thing that we are, is both. We're, we're in both places, like two sides of a coin. One thing in both places. So in the last episode, um, the last modes of, modes of Sentience episode, we talked about the sides of coin, one side being matter and one side being consciousness. And what I'm telling you when I say consciousness and God are the same thing, is that one side of the coin is, is matter, and one side is God, and you're both. So your consciousness is co-conscious in, in, in unity, in this weird way. And the hair is standing up on my arms. Thank you, William James. All right, now we're going to get to Henri Bergson. Henri Bergson wrote the following to William James. So here we got a Bergson quote, something he wrote to William James. Get a load of this. He said, I believe myself to be present before a superb spectacle. Generally, the sight of a landscape of intense colors through which I was traveling at high speed and which gave me such a profound impression of reality that I could not believe it was a simple dream. So Henri Bergson, describing his own mystic experience, very much like the one Nietzsche described with flowers turning into new, new flowers and colors, right? Something like a DMT trip. 
All right, so Bergson, the reason I want to talk about him having a mystic experience is because Bergson's metaphysics were, were explicitly employed by Aldous Huxley. Love Aldous Huxley. The Doors of Perception. Remember he wrote that book? If you guys know the band of the Doors, they got their name from that book. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Terrific, terrific author. Uh, Aldous Huxley is one of those people that I, I teeter back and forth as to whether he should be on my Mount Rushmore. Um, but I digress. Let me, let me read you this Aldous Huxley quote. Reflecting on my experience, I find that we should do well to consider the type of theory which Bergson put forward, that the function of the brain and nervous system and sense organs is, in the main, eliminative and not productive. All right, so rather than trying to explain that to you, I'm going to let the author do it. So Dr. Shirsted Hughes says, this Bergsonian so-called reducing valve theory has been very influential in psychedelic circles. It is the view that the brain does not produce consciousness, but filters it according to practical purposes. His theory was referred to in connection with the recent brain imaging studies carried out upon subjects on LSD at Imperial College, headed by Amanda Fielding, who stated, Huxley describes the ego as a reducing valve of the brain. How right they were. Now for the first time we have seen the empirical basis of these realizations. Alright, so there's a whole bunch here. So what I want you to show you here is this link going from Plato all the way to uh, Nietzsche, from William James to Bergson, from Bergson to Aldous Huxley, and from Huxley to this you know, modern um, neurological researcher, Amanda Fielding, who has confirmed through her, uh, through her recent studies of people on LSD that the brain actually does seem to work as a, as a reducing valve. It filters conscious experience because what, what conscious experience is is sort of a mystery. And we know that the psychedelic experience is actually filtering the experience even more than what you might see in your daily reality and the healthy functioning of your brain. So what exactly is conscious experience? It's like this over this overwhelming eternal um you know what? You know what? I don't know. But it's something that that both Bergson and Nietzsche described seeing like, like visually seeing in this psychedelic experience as this transforming fractal shape giving birth to new shapes forever. And this is what, this is what that represented. This terrible, powerful, you know, force that we call consciousness, whatever that is. All right, there's another one here. He says, uh, neuropsychopharmacologist David Nutt, he made the same point researching psilocybin. So David Nutt says, psychedelics are thought of as mind-expanding drugs. So it has commonly been assumed that they work by increasing brain activity. But surprisingly, we found that psilocybin actually causes activity to decrease. These hubs constrain our experience of the world and keep it orderly. We now know that deactivating these regions leads to a state in which the world is experienced as strange. Strange. No shit, Dr. Nutt. A psychedelic experience definitely reveals the world as strange. 
you know, whether you're calling that the way Dr. Sherstead Hughes did when he said, you know, a four-dimensional mantis machine, or whether you're looking looking at it the way that um, the way that Bergson and Nietzsche did as this fractal, you know, process, this this visualization of a fractal process. Yeah, either way, strange. Fair enough. And then lastly, Alfred North Whitehead. We're going to talk about Alfred North Whitehead briefly. He, his quote, we obviously talked about him in the last episode quite a bit, but this quote comes from him. He says, The essence of great experience is penetration into the unknown, the unexperienced. If you like to, the, to phrase it so, philosophy is mystical. For mysticism is direct insight into depths as yet unspoken. So to Whitehead, something like philosophy, something like seeking after the greatest mysteries um, of being, of existence, that that is very much like a psychedelic experience. They're both mystical experiences, philosophy and psychedelics. They go hand in hand, like we saw going all the way back to the beginning of philosophy with, with Plato himself drinking the kaikion and seeing the spirits and leaving his body. So how to, how, to, how to wrap this up? Let's try this way. The mystic experience validates a suspicion we all feel, however unacknowledged. It tells you that you aren't crazy for thinking the world may be more than it seems to be, or that you may be more than you believe much more. The mystic experience confirms that there are mysteries beyond our understanding, but perhaps not entirely beyond our reach. Stranger still, that they may even be found within. Coming to believe that perception is incomplete, that there is more to be known than what appears on the surface, we speculate about what the unknown might be, this longing brought us to philosophy and to the mystic experience. We see the known in the objects around us and gaze beyond them, starry-eyed, seeking what cannot be seen. Philosophy seeks to understand the distinction between known and unknown, between actual and potential. It proposes a heavenly realm like Olympus, where the unknown exists. Plato calls it the world of forms and passes the torch down the generations to Kant who called it noumena, or things as they actually are. But to explain how the numinous world of forms relates to the world of our experience is a mystery that remains even today. The mystic experience drives the process of understanding onward, affirming the unity of existence and reminding us that the world of forms in the world of matter are not distinct from one another. We find ourselves participating simultaneously in both worlds. As the psychologist Jordan Peterson put it, quote, we participate in a greater reality than we are aware. And quote, we are more than we suppose by a tremendous margin. And just how much more are we than we believe? How great is our reality, our mystery? 
to answer this question, we, we have but to hearken back to, to mystic intuition. We are one. All is one. So what? So we are something that exists both in the real material cosmos and in the eternal realm of forms. We are the embodiment of a mystery so great that it requires a reducing valve, as Bergson suggested, even to be experienced at all. We are simultaneously conscious and unconscious, God and man. We are that which bridges the gap. As William James so beautifully put it, all evidence sweeps us towards belief in some form of superhuman life with which we may, unknown to ourselves, be co-conscious. That's exactly it. We are co-conscious, eternal, numinous, unconscious potentiality on one side, finite, phenomenal, conscious actuality on the other. God from one perspective, the cosmos from another. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 